Well, I'm very glad to be with you this morning. I'm thankful to Cole for the opportunity to, to speak to you. I might have been the only person foolish enough to follow up after Ronnie's teaching on missions conference. I'm also very thankful to my wife. We have uh, two new twin boys uh, who are um, handfuls, and she took the midnight to 6 a.m. shifts uh, so that I would be well-rested this morning. Uh, if you haven't already, turn to, to Titus 2, uh, and let's look at this together because a lot of what I'm saying you may not believe, and it would be helpful to have the Word of God open so you can see for yourself. I also uh, spoke with several friends uh, and asked them for, for prayer, and uh, one of them, Brad Duffy, said, oh, you're preaching this Sunday. I said, yeah. He said, oh, well, that's great news. That means I'll get extra sleep this Sunday. I said, well, does, does that mean you're going to stay home and sleep, or are you going to sleep in the service? And he says, well, one scenario depends on me, and the other scenario depends on you. Uh, so it's always helpful to know who your audience is. Uh, but as we look at this text, one of the things I want to do is I want to focus this message to two types of people. And maybe uh, you're not in this category right now. Maybe you will be in the future. Maybe you have been in the past. Or perhaps you know somebody going through this. Our, our message, although it centers on grace, is also going to be talking about godliness. It's going to be talking about holy living. And, and the people I want to address this message to are two groups. One believes that godliness is not a priority. When they consider what's important, when they consider how to organize their days, when they consider what activity they should devote themselves to, godliness isn't high on the list. Uh, it's kind of maybe somebody grew up in, in, in a church environment that heavily emphasized conversion and so they thought, hey, once I'm in the gate, it's all good. Don't have to worry about anything else. It's the apathy of the saved, the frozen chosen. And this could be intentional or unintentional. There are some who are unconcerned uh, with godliness, frankly, because they don't care about it. There may be others of us who give lip service to it and say, yeah, God, godliness is important, but I'm just so busy right now. I've got to worry about the family. I've got to worry about my business responsibilities. And the cares of the world distract us from the pursuit of godly living. So one category of people I'd like to address this morning are those for whom godliness is not a priority, who have a general sense of apathy, intentional or unintentional, about our godliness. Uh, the second group I want to talk to, and I assume in a church like this, and I know in my own life for many years I was a part of this second group, is those who believe, yeah, godliness is important, but I'm not sure godliness is possible for me. I've attempted it and failed, I'm a, and attempted it, and attempted it, and attempted it, and attempted it, and I keep falling flat on my face. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to move on. I feel stuck and confined in this place. 
So these are the two audiences I would like to speak to, the two types of people I would like to address this message to. And as we look at the text, we see verse 11 and 12, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Our message title is uh, The Second Effect of Grace. And those of you who are astute thinkers uh, will have figured out that if there is a second effect of grace, that means that there is also a first effect of grace. Uh, the, the first effect of grace we, we see is, is right there at the beginning. I thought this was uh, appropriate after missions conference. The first effect of grace is that it brings salvation to all people. That's what we were celebrating. That's what we were mobilizing for. That's what we were supporting throughout the missions conference, wasn't it? It's this miraculous thing that God has decided to bring salvation to mankind and, and not just a few people. It, it, it's interesting that the passage that goes before this talks about exhortations to uh, young men and older men, young women and older women, slaves and free, all these different categories. And, and one of the things that we don't think about that's so shocking about the gospel is that in Christ all these groups and also Jew and Gentile, receive the offer of salvation. That the goodness of God extends to men and women. That it extends to young and old. That it extends to slave and free. That it extends to Jew and Gentile. That the goodness of God pours forth and is made available to all people in Christ Jesus. And this should be one of our main emphases. In fact, everything we say after this flows from this. The fact that God's grace has appeared and brought salvation to all people should be extremely encouraging. But by the way, grace is one of those words we use over and over and over again, and then it, it can be helpful sometimes uh, to take a minute and, and stop and define it so that we're not just using it. I was reminded of this recently when I was uh, interacting with a new believer. And as I was asking, as we were interacting, uh, me and some other guys were working with him, and he, he, he said, y'all keep saying grace. What's that mean? I said, well, it's unmerited favor. He said, great, what's that mean? I thought, okay, need to, need to undo some of the church ease around the word. I said, well, it's a free gift. And, and by the way, we don't even understand what free means in our culture, do we? You, you ever been to a place that says, buy one, get one free? That's not free. The way you know it's not free is if you take one and start leaving, they're going to stop you. <laughs> you say, I'm just taking the free one. <laughs> it, it, it won't work. Now, the... When, it, when we say that grace is free, it, it means it's unearned. It, it means we didn't earn it, we didn't merit it, we can't buy it, we can't bribe God to get it. 
It it's a demonstration of His goodness rather than our deservingness. A, a gift shows the goodness of the giver, not the worthiness of the recipient. It's, uh, it's a manifestation of how much He loves us. Because when you love somebody, what do you do? You do good things for them whether they deserve it or not. You show forth your love to them. You get excited about that. How can I bring good to them? How can I do good for them? So we have this grace that appears. And by the way, it appears in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And its first effect is bringing salvation for all people. What a glorious thing. But the passage doesn't stop there. There's another effect of grace. And we see this in the passage. For the grace of God has appeared. Not only does it appear, it brings salvation for all people. Not only does it bring salvation for all people, but the second part says training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The second effect of grace is an equipping, a training, a, a teaching, and an instructing effect. And as I was uh, looking at this passage, I, I did a little bit of work on the, on the word here that's used, uh, training, equipping, uh, your, your, your passage may uh, say teaching or instructing. And it's a really interesting word. It, it shows up a couple times in the book of Acts. Uh, one of the places it shows up in Acts is in Acts 7, where it talks about uh, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. It, it also shows up in reference to the instruction that Paul receives from the rabbi Gamaliel. And, and when you kind of look at the word, I, I want to give it a little bit of a, a, a different nuance or, or uh, an accentuated nuance, is this idea of training is kind of an idea of enculturating, that, that it is making us something we are not, that it is training us to be something we are not, that it is equipping us to become what we are not yet. Moses had to become an Egyptian. Paul, Paul had to become a faithful Jew through his training. This, this training and instruction equips us to do and equips us to be what we were not. Now, I, I said I wanted to address this message to two people. One who has a general apathy about godliness, either intentionally or unintentionally. And I'd like to speak to that group a little bit first. If you don't see the importance and the priority of godliness, I want you to look closely at this passage. Because in this passage, we see that God's divine plan is centered upon producing godliness within you. Uh, look at this, this plan. And, and by the way, he, he mentions it in, in different stages. Uh, there's 
the part of his plan that involves the appearance of grace. So in, in the past, there's the appearance of grace. That is, Christ appears in the past as a manifestation of God's grace, God's goodness to us. And then that grace that appeared is to have a present effect. At the cross, through Christ, the grace of God appeared. In the present, we have godliness that comes by the Spirit of God from Christ. By the way, we, we see this. If you don't believe me, look at uh, Titus 3, 5 through 6. Titus 3, 5 through 6, just a little bit further on, says, He saved us not by works not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, he, whom He poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior. In our passage, it says that grace trains us to live upright, godly, upright, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. There is a manifestation of grace in the past so that there can be a manifestation of godliness in the present in the people of God. And, and the plan doesn't stop there. It moves forward and further on so that ultimately there is a manifestation of glory at the second coming of Christ. This is our hope, and it's the completion of our godliness. In the present, we're in the process of becoming like Christ. At Christ's second coming, when we see Him, we will be made like Him. Now, what do we have in that? We have a divine plan, past, present, and future, that is centered upon what? God, through His grace, equipping, empowering, and enabling us to be godly people, to live holy lives. There's a, a place in Arkansas where the men always take their men's retreat. And it's along the, the Spring River in Arkansas. And if you uh, go up to the, to the source in Arkansas of the Spring River is a place called Mammoth Springs. Uh, and it, when you go there, it's almost like this giant lake is just gushing out of the ground. In fact, Mammoth Springs is the seventh largest freshwater spring in the world. But the water that, that gushes up there out of that doesn't stay stagnant. It pours out and for, forms the Spring River. And the Spring River, as most rivers, doesn't stay stagnant. It moves and flows forward. And as it moves and flows forward, it joins with other rivers and tributaries, and then joins in the Mississippi, and then flows forth into the Gulf, into the Atlantic. Now, I, I want you to have that image in your mind as we think about this process. The grace that springs up in Jesus Christ, its purpose is not to remain stagnant. Otherwise, we ought to hold people under the water when we baptize them. Just finish them off, send them to glory. No, its, it's purpose isn't to stay there or be stagnant. It's to flow forth into godly living. And that godly living is heading toward an ocean of glory that will be manifest at the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Hallelujah. 
There's a divine plan, and it's all of grace, the grace that saves us, the grace that sanctifies us, the grace that's manifest at Christ's glory. It's all of grace. John 1.16 says, for we have received from his fullness grace upon grace. Aren't you glad for the multifaceted grace of our God? Not only does the divine plan point to the priority of godliness, our redeemed identity also points us to the priority of godliness. So not just what God is doing, has been doing, and will do, but who we are is important towards this. What does the passage say? Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Why did Christ die? So we could belong to him. So we could be fervently devoted to his purposes. By the way, uh, this devotion to his purposes manifests itself in extraordinarily ordinary means. You, you go back and, and look at the beginning of chapter 2, and, and with a passage like this, that's filled with such depth and such glory, you almost accept, you, you almost accept like, expect, let me learn how to speak, you almost expect something, you know, crazy to be exhorted. But no, he's, he's telling husbands and wives to love one another, people to be self-disciplined, people to manifest godliness in their everyday lives, to show grace towards other in their everyday life. By the way, that can be harder. If there's a lot at stake or a lot of people are watching, it might be easy for me to be gracious. If I'm all by myself in my car driving down 240 and somebody cuts me off, it might be a little bit harder to manifest the love and grace of God towards the person who cut me off at that point, isn't it? Our identity is in Christ who gave himself to redeem us. He redeemed us from something and for something. He redeemed us from lawlessness and purified for himself a people for his own possession. We belong to him. And we have an activity in that identity to be zealous for good works. If you're apathetic about godliness, I hope you recognize that God's divine plan and your redeemed identity point to this glorious importance that God has for you. Now, even if you've bought into that purpose, and now we're getting to address the second group, even if you bought into that purpose, you may be saying, hey, I know the objective. We're supposed to be godly. I know it's important, but I don't think I can get there. I want to be godly, I keep trying, but I don't think I can do it. Now, the, the goal of godliness, by the way, is especially difficult when we look at what this passage says about it. It, it says we're to renounce certain things. 
That's the first way in which it trains us, the first way in which it enculturates us, is by a casting off of something, by a saying no to something. What are the two things? There's ungodliness, and, and ungodliness can take a couple of forms. One form, and these are forms that I, I think may exist in the church, since y'all are here, that's who I'm talking to. One form of ungodliness is idolatry. This is the type of uh, religion that the Pharisees had. Uh, by the way, do you think of, ever think about why people would participate in idolatry? It doesn't make much sense, does it? You think, okay, so they've, they've got a God, but now they want to go over and have another God, and, and what do they do? They bring sacrifices and, and kill those animals to these other gods. Now, why are they killing those animals? It's not because... They just hate animals. What, what they want is an exchange. The reason why people pursue false worship, the reason why they make those sacrifices is because they want something from God. By the way, the God of the Bible is not a God you can negotiate with. But some of you are in church. So, some of you have come here, and it's as a means of negotiation. All right, Lord, if I do this for you, then you're going to be obligated to do this for me. If I serve on the missions committee, if I join the deacon board, if I take this missions trip, if I give this amount of money, then I, I can expect certain things from you, can't I? That is the heart of idolatry, is having a God you can control and manipulate based on what you give him. And most of us are smart enough not to say that. We know that's wrong. But the times it manifests itself is when things go wrong when the business fails, when your partner betrays you, when the cancer returns, and you begin to think, why me, God? Haven't I done so much for you? Haven't I showed forth my faithfulness to you? There are a lot worse people living a lot better lives. Why me? Someone who had gone through uh, tremendous suffering and, and pain, uh, was with some people, and, and they asked, why you? He said, why not me? As simple as it is, I think that's one of the best responses to those questions. Why not me? Am I to be excluded from it? So there's this sense of idolatry that can creep into our Christianity where we come to church and we're focusing on how can I control and manipulate God so that I can reach my objectives? There's another form of ungodliness that I'll call irreligion. Uh, irreligion is the people who, who come to church or maybe don't come to church. They're around Christianity. They're somewhat pleasant to be around, but they have no real fear of God or reverence for Him. Their consciences are useless. They have not committed to God or His purposes. These are two forms of ungodliness. And one is, um, one is the ungodliness of idolatry, which is trying to get God to serve us. The other is the ungodliness of irreligion, which says it doesn't really matter if I serve God. 
These are things that we must cast off. The other thing mentioned is, is worldly passions. That's living and pursuing our own pleasure and glory rather than the glory of God. This pursuit of godliness begins with a removal of the negative. But it doesn't stop there. By the way, if you just have the removal of the negative, that just gets you to neutral. That, that gets you to, uh, you know, the same status as a lump on a log. You're there, but you not, might not be good for much. So the goal isn't just to remove the negative, but also to move us towards the positive. It takes us from the negative to the positive. It gives us a new lifestyle. It trains us to do three things, live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Self-control means that we are rightly ordered and oriented to ourselves, that I know which desires to suppress and which ones to support. And by the way, the, the other two hinge a little bit on this one because even if I want to treat God right, even if I want to treat others right, if I don't have control over myself, I don't have much of an ability to do that, do I? The, the second one is to be upright. This refers to our relationship with others. Are we living in a right relationship with others? And, and thirdly, it says godly. This is rightly oriented with God. And by the way, this last one, that's the term I've been using throughout, godly living. And part of the reason why I use that term throughout is because it contains the other two. Why? Because God commands us to be self-controlled and to have a right relationship with others. So the concept of godliness contains the other two. So all we have to do is to act in a right way at the right time with the right attitude and in a right relationship with ourselves, with others, and with God. That's easy, isn't it? No problem. No wonder some of us are prone to despair. In fact, if you focus on just one element of what our Christian responsibility is, it can lead you to despair. Forgiveness. Have I forgiven everybody I need to forgive? Love. Am I loving with the self-sacrificial love of God towards all people? Submission to God and obedience to Him. Just take one of those. Try and do it for a week. There's good news for us, though. This passage reveals that the same grace that saves us equips us. The same grace that saves us, that equips us. The same grace that saves us from sin brings us strength, brings strength to the weak, power to the powerless, knowledge to the ignorant, wisdom to the foolish. Despair is a good place to be, believe it or not. The, the, the reason why despair can be a good place to be is because when you're starting to despair, you're starting to come to the end of yourself. And once you're starting to come to the end of yourself, you're getting close to being in a position where God can start using you for His purposes and for His glory. So what does this all mean? What should we do? I need to start applying this into our lives. Uh, I want you to plug into grace to produce godliness. I want you to plug into grace to produce godliness. I don't know why when I think of plugs, I always think of vacuums. Maybe it's the only thing I, I, I really ever plug in. Uh, 
if we're not plugged into a power source, it doesn't matter how many times you run the vacuum over the carpet, it's not going to make any difference. You've got to be connected to the power source. And grace not just empowers us, it equips us. It acts as a trainer. Do you ever think of the purpose of, what is the purpose of a trainer? Whether you have somebody training you to play piano or training you in fitness, their purpose is to empower you to do what you weren't able to do previously. They give you the drills, they give you the instruction, they show you how to place your hands in order to gain something that you were previously unable to do, to be able to play the piano, to be able to lift the weight. They also tell you what not to do. No, that's not how you do that. You need to change your fingers. No, that's not how you do that. You'll pull your back out. Grace trains us. It trains you to do what you can't do on your own. By the way, this is why it's always so refreshing to return to grace. No, no matter how many times you've heard the story of Christ, no matter how many times you've stored, heard the story of the cross, you keep coming back to it over and over again, and it seems like it refreshes you and encourages you. Why? Because grace continues to train us, to equip us. Now, if we're plugged into grace... To produce godliness, what does that look like? This is going to sound super obvious. If you tell your friends about this, they'll think, well, what a boring message that was. If we're plugged into grace, it produces dependence in us. And the two activities I'm going to give you to do are things that we can be doing in order to try and gain independence from God and live our spiritual lives on our own, or that can lead us into submission to His rule and reign over our lives and allow us to be controlled by His grace through His Spirit. We need to develop dependence of finding a power outside of ourselves. We have to unplug from ourselves, unplug from works, unplug from idolatry. And plugging into grace looks like plugging into the Scriptures. Where do we see grace? Where do we see Christ? Is it not in the Word of God made manifest to us? Are you seeking Him there? Are you depending upon Him in the Scriptures? Another way in which we plug into grace, by the way, 2 Timothy 3.16 so that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness that the man of God might be fully... I just went blank on the last part. Must be fully equipped. That, that passage uses the same equipping word that's found here in Titus. The Word of God equips us for the task. It's one of the ways in which God shows His grace to us is through His Word. The second way we plug into God's grace is through prayer. I've told you I've got two twins at home. They aren't very useful. <laughs> they can't do that much for themselves. They soil themselves and they don't have the ability to clean themselves up. <laughs> 
They're hungry and they don't have the ability to feed themselves. Do you know the one thing they do have? They have the ability to cry out to the one who can help them. Saints, if grace is what is empowering us, prayer is of the highest importance. Are you praying for God to manifest his grace to you? Are you praying to God that he would manifest his grace through you? Are you praying that you would live out your redeemed identity and God's divine plan for you here on earth? Are you praying that you would have a zeal for good works? Are you crying out to the one who has the power? Prayers for godliness abound in the scriptures if you don't know how to pray for it. When you encounter it as you're reading scripture, I encourage you, when you see passage like this, pray for it. Pray, Lord, remove from me ungodliness and worldly passions. Lord, train me to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in the present age. In all this, we have one to look to, to be encouraged and strengthened in our grace. We sang earlier, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Just ask who that meant be. Christ Jesus, it is he. It is appropriate today that we are going into communion now. Communion is a reminder of our dependence upon the grace of God. That Christ not only saves us, but he sustains us through our Christian life and blesses us. In the same way, the food that we eat and the, drink that we, the drinks that we drink sustain us in our everyday lives. Let us now pray in preparation for participating in the Lord's table. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the same powerful, the same beautiful, the same glorious grace that was manifest in saving us equips us for godly lives. Lord, we realize that it's not instant, but that it is a training work that you do in us and to us. Lord, we pray that as we come to the table, we would be focused upon, we would be excited about, we would worship you as a result of the grace that has been manifest in Jesus Christ. Lord, as sinners, we don't deserve to be saved. As the powerless, we don't deserve to be empowered. As the foolish, we do not deserve to receive your wisdom. But we thank you for your grace in lavishing blessing upon blessing to us. May we depend upon you so that when Christ returns in all his glory, we may rejoice again in that day at the full revelation of his grace. Amen.